Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's uh, fantastic to have you along today. Perhaps just to begin with, uh, just let us a little bit know a little bit about your professional responsibilities currently. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Um, I'm the CEO and President of DBM Burkham, which is a steel detailing and building information modeling company mm-hmm. um, with uh, global operations mm-hmm. in eight countries. Mm-hmm. And that's a global business head office here in Brisbane? Yeah, it's head, head office in Brisbane. About 40% of our revenue comes from Australia, uh-huh. 60% out of North America. Okay. Uh, we are in eight countries, as I said. Our biggest operating centers are in uh, India and the Philippines. Okay, and just out of interest, being a global business that is owned by an American parent company, yeah. how did you end up as a business in little old Brisbane? Uh, DBM is uh, is uh, is a merger, a three-way merger between three businesses. Mm-hmm. So BDS Workon was one of the predecessor companies of mm-hmm. which I was the CEO. Uh-huh. Uh, BDS started in um, 1964 as the Brisbane Drafting Services. Okay, uh, and has grown since then. Uh, people have moved from drafting boards to an entirely digital platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all our deliverables are digital today, mm-hmm. and. And we then uh, merged with a company called PDC, which is Perth Drafting Company, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, subsequently with CanDraft, which is based out of Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 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 we are headquartered here uh, because I was the CEO, and then I took on the CEO responsibility of those three companies, mm-hmm. the other two companies rather. And we have now merged into one single pla- seamless platform mm-hmm. and renamed the company DBM Workon um, late last year. Right. And uh, you were telling me before uh, we started the podcast that you know, in terms of how the business is perceived in the eyes of your customers, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, best in class and, you know, it's a premium solution. Um and you've done some really, really interesting projects. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the type of work you've been doing around the world. Uh, the company has worked on a number of iconic projects. Um, so we've worked on the Apple headquarters, the Tesla Giga plant, the Facebook headquarters, wow. uh, the Google headquarters, uh, <laughs> uh, stadiums, um, uh, Lazed, which is the recent stadium we just finished. We do a lot of work for the mining sector, particularly the iron ore sector mm-hmm. uh, in Western Australia, and a number of other mining projects as well, including work for companies like Newcrest, uh, BHP, Rio, mm-hmm. Rio uh, Fortescue. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it's got an industrial strand as well as a commercial strand, the commercial being the the, 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 the stadiums and the entertainment complexes and a lot of high rises. So we've done two of the tallest buildings in California mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and working on a few others in New York at the moment. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of airports. Um, so it's been a 50, 
five year plus history of iconic projects mm -hmm. um, and they're all complex big jobs. Mm, sounds like it and I mean certainly I could understand the mining orientation here in Australia but doing Facebook and Tesla and Apple and so on is what you know people would regard as iconic brands who no doubt have iconic uh, you know commercial premises and so on was that something that came about because of the Vancouver business that was brought in, or was that um, a Brisbane business, you know, on the merits of what's been happening in Australia, win those projects? Um, it was really the Brisbane-based business that won these projects. The, the founder and former owner of, of BDS Workon was very entrepreneurial and went to the US when uh, when the mining industry here had collapsed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it is a very cyclical industry, the mining industry, and he decided to go to the U.S. to to build a bigger and more stable business. Mm -hmm. And he built this U.S. capacity only mm -hmm. over many years. Mm -hmm. um, the Vancouver business that we had acquired is very much a bridge-focused business. Okay. They focus on bridges, uh, and, and they've done a number of other bridges, but it's very much... <coughs> Uh, a North American business. Right. And so how I imagine the competition for that work in the US would be fierce. Mm -hmm. What was the founder owner taking into the US market that made you, your business stand out ahead of the local competitors? Uh, it was the quality that, um, um, and, uh, and he was uh, fairly tenacious as well. Mm. Uh, it was the quality that, that he sold and, and the operations then, it was very much a Brisbane-centric business mm -hmm. and, the, and the Australian staff were very quality conscious That's and that awesome. has continued today. Uh, the head of operations, for instance, is is based in Brisbane, right? And um, and his um, his you know quality is everything for him. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic story. Uh, I uh, it's something that I hadn't realised, but I imagine that uh, you know in many respects at a local level in the broader business community, people would be fascinated to hear that this uh, Brisbane company is going over to America and you know running these. You know, iconic projects, uh, something to be very proud of. So let's come back and talk a, a bit more about uh, the business a little later in this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm really interested in, you know, learning more about you and perhaps uh, just tell us about, you know, your early life where you were born and grew up and mum and dad and, and so on. Oh, thank you, Richard. Um, I grew up uh, in India. I was born in, in Mysore, India. Um, and... Uh, did all my schooling in Bangalore long before Bangalore became the tech hub that it is. Uh, did my engineering in Bangalore as well mm -hmm. and in uh, 1988 uh, migrated to Australia to do my MBA in the Melbourne Business School, mm -hmm. uh, Melbourne University. What attracted you to being an engineer? Uh, my dad was an engineer, okay. so, uh, so it was just that uh, in those days in India um, you know, there were two professions that people wanted to get into or were told to get into, yeah. basically. That was either medicine or engineering. Yeah. And, um, and so I got into engineering and, uh, and continued from there. Mm -hmm. My dad was an engineer. He built power plants. Um, um, 
So uh, that you know, that's what kind of right. drew me to it. And do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, one sister. Right. And, and is she an engineer or a doctor? No, so she's <laughs> she's in advertising. So oh, she's in advertising in Australia as well. Oh, so, so yeah. there you go. So she uh, she was the black sheep of the family. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, uh, did you come immediately from doing undergraduate to Australia to do further study, or what did you do something in between? In between, I worked for two years with Tata's, which is a big industrial yeah. house in India. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked for two years there. You needed a minimum work experience to get into an MBA mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't that keen on doing a master's in, 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 uh, in technology or engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so MBA was the big drive then and it was at that time uh, a pretty wanted course to get into. Sure, yeah. And, uh, and I suppose you could have gone to a number of different countries around the world to uh, do your MBA. What made you pick Australia? Um, Australia then was uh, uncharted waters for Indians, um, unlike mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my peers have gone to the US. Mm-hmm. Um, almost most of my classmates are in the US or went to the US for, for the education. And um, at that stage, uh, Australia was different, but, but I, 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 I read a lot about the country and, mm-hmm. and, and liked it. And the U.S. had a strange way of avoiding visas, okay. uh, student visas, and I didn't yeah. want to get into that lottery. Right. Which um, and 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 uh, and I've moved to Australia, lived in Australia, had many opportunities to move to the U.S. Should I wanted to, but mm-hmm. this is the place to be. Mm-hmm. And is that from a career perspective or from a lifestyle perspective? Um, it's both career and lifestyle. I think. Um, uh, lifestyle unquestionably Australia is is has got a much far superior lifestyle mm-hmm. but if you can then make a career out of it then you have the best of both worlds mm-hmm. um, um, uh, and and uh, so that's uh, you know it's always been to live here okay. uh, and uh, and I haven't really been tempted mm-hmm. ever to move to the US right and so uh, you go to university you complete your MBA and uh, what happens from there uh, I got um, selected off campus. I got into what was then known as merchant banking, right. and it was the heydays uh, uh, in the late eighties, uh, early nineties, to get into to banking. Uh, so I was then in the finance industry for twenty years uh, with various banks, ma- mainly with J.P. Morgan, and then the latter half with Westpac. And so, was that the idea you wanted to shift? out of an engineering career or was that intended or did it happen by chance? It happened by chance and at that stage I didn't want to stick to engineering. I wanted mm-hmm. to try something different and banking at that that time was a very glamorous industry mm-hmm. to get into. Uh, getting out of the MBA program those days it was either management consulting or, or banking were mm-hmm. the two um, two areas to get into mm-hmm. uh, and so I was uh, fortunate to get into investment banking at that stage mm-hmm. uh, and it was uh, an interesting 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, towards the end uh, I, I, was, I, I was a bit jaded by it, uh, this is around uh, 9-11 and then post after that the industry started losing its charm and we were selling a commodity as, mm-hmm. in, as in money. Um, mm-hmm. That was my job, selling money. Uh, I think you can put all sorts of other descriptions to it, but basically, I was selling money, uh, uh, and and it didn't. There wasn't 
there was there was a certain level you could get to uh, within those banks, those overseas banks, which is when I started trying to do something on my own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, was there a ceiling to how high you could advance your career within the banks? Is that what you mean by there was a certain level? Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's that's what I felt, right. and and the culture. I somehow felt I didn't belong in that culture. Was and that because you were from an engineering rather than a traditional background, or was it because you're in Australia rather than the US, or what did you feel limited you? I think, I mean, I, somewhere along the line, I, the, I wasn't that enchanted with the whole profession, okay. the, 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 the way the industry performed functioned mm-hmm. which then uh, and I always wanted to work for myself mm-hmm. at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, that was always my goal to be uh, an entrepreneur long before entrepreneurship became as glamorous as it is today <laughs> <laughs> well I think for the outside business ocean looks glamorous but yeah. uh, I can tell you I've had many sleepless nights <laughs> oh, yeah. so um, what was the okay you went into investment banking because you thought this looks glamorous and exciting and the shine started to wear off and then you thought, oh, being an entrepreneur looks glamorous and exciting and, and, and would you say that you've largely followed more of this heart, it's more sort of heart-centred rather than head-centred, there's something romantic about it? Uh, I Back in India, I used to have a lot of friends who uh, looked down on people who worked in a profession. They, right. were, uh, they were all businessmen, mm-hmm. so there was, I think, there's something that was, that was, that was there that we should go and try it. Right. And in my forties, I said, if I don't try it now, I never mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to look back mm-hmm. and and then become, I guess, a banker and retiring mm-hmm. into that and said I never mm-hmm. went out and had a go. So do you think uh, that because in the Indian culture, you know, the parents say we want you to be a doctor or an engineer, that going and being an entrepreneur was a bit of a rebellious, uh, you know, I want to go and forge my own path and then look back with some disdain to the people who did what mum and dad told them to do? No, it depends on where you come from. And, uh, mm-hmm. India is very, very diverse. And mm-hmm. It depends on which state you come from and mm-hmm. which, um, uh, you know, certainly the South Indians, which I was, mm-hmm. um, there was more of a culture to go and work for someone to serve. And, right. Uh, um, and, and so they didn't look down on white-collar slavery at that point in time. <laughs> Whereas, um, whereas, say the Gujaratis who were highly entrepreneurial, right. looked down on white collar slavery, and if you mm-hmm. didn't look for yourself, it was, mm-hmm. there was something wrong with you. Mm. Um, so, how did you come to be? You said they were your friends. How did you come to be part of that circle if you were from a different sort of traditional perspective? So, I, was, I spent uh, quite a few years. My parents were then living in Bombay, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is a very very entrepreneurial city. Mm-hmm. Um, as a city of dreams, as they call it, and right. uh, that's that's you know I had a lot of friends who who were just entrepreneurs, and mm-hmm. they just couldn't understand why I worked for anybody. Right, uh, they just, they, it wasn't it was foreign to them. And what and what was your argument at the time? There wasn't an argument. I just said, well, well this is you know it was not something I uh, I had 
It was it was a learning. Right. It, so I didn't argue it. It was you know I just observed and right. filed it away and said, yeah. well, I don't have the capital to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so well, let's see if I do have the capital one mm-hmm. day and the flexibility, you should go out and do that. Mm-hmm. So fast forward now to. Uh, you made a decision to go out and start your own uh, business and be an entrepreneur. So, uh, so tell us about that. Um, so we, so I was then uh, running a fund, which was associated with the with the U.S. hedge fund, mm-hmm. um, and we were looking at in, looking for investment opportunities. So mm-hmm. I left the banking job, joined this fund, and it was a partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and um, and um, we found this opportunity in BDS work on at that point in time. Ah, okay. Um, and um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, the fund was unable to make the investment. Mm-hmm. I'd done all the due diligence and all the legal solid, and they were unable to make the investment. So I decided to to invest in the company mm-hmm. uh, and engineer the MBO. Mm-hmm. We got in a, another friend as well, mm-hmm. and we got the managers, some of the managers, it, uh, all the senior managers in BDS to invest in it as well. Mm-hmm. And we bought the business uh, in November two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and we were fully levered up, geared up, and. Uh, um, in those days, the banks were very liberal with debt funding, um, and um, and we bought the business. And lo and behold, um, we were hit with the the Great Recession of the GFC mm. two years later with a lot of debt. Mm. Um, so those were the joys of entrepreneurship. <laughs> the other side, the sleepless nights. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so was the intention, at least initially, that you would invest and you would obviously have oversight, but you wouldn't work in the business or Yes, it was that. I would have oversight, so I had the, the title of chairman, but mm-hmm. um, but we had a CEO who was who was running the business, mm-hmm. and uh, and after a year and a half, uh, we realized it wasn't working out. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it uh, so so that's when I took over running the business as mm-hmm. an interim CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the depths of that recession mm-hmm. then. Uh, so I took over as an interim CEO, but then realized we couldn't afford a CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, so I continued running the business, and then I started liking the business mm-hmm. and got passionate about it. And uh, and uh, we eventually paid down all the debt mm-hmm. uh, and started growing the business. And we came out of the recession, and the business was performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so after having run it for. 10 years in November, November 2016 we were approached by our one of our larger clients mm-hmm. to sell the business it was unsolicited we weren't for sale we were profitable doing quite well um, so we sold the business at that point in time right. uh, and and then I continued as its CEO for mm-hmm. another uh, year for, until, until I'm still at CEO sure and at what point did the founder uh, on exit, the founder owner exited at in in back in when we bought the business back right. in t- two thousand and seven. Okay. So he uh, wasn't handcuffed in for a period. No, of he wanted to just retire. He was right. in his seventies uh, mm-hmm. and he just wanted out of the business. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't totally uninvolved. The day he sold, he didn't right. know about it sure. at all. And what was it originally about the business that made you think this is an exciting investment opportunity? 
Um, the fact that it had a very, very small Indian operation of five people, and mm-hmm. I said, well, I know that country and I can scale it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that time, Indian outsourcing was the rage, yeah. uh, and I thought I could scale it up. Uh, it was a scalable business. It had very passionate managers who are mm-hmm. all with me today. Okay. Uh, uh, and um, they all had co-invested in the MBO. Mm-hmm. And when we sold the business in 20, uh, uh, 2016, they did well out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we created a bunch of millionaires, which, uh, which, mm-hmm. which is very satisfying. Right. And they've all hung around. They're still here. They're That's still here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because I, you, know, you hear these stories about that happening and then the executive seems to go, yes, I've made my money. And all of a sudden, you know, all of that... Uh, um, that uh, historical information and, and knowledge within the business, it gets lost. So to be able to retain more, you know, four years later is fantastic. And it, it, one of the things that you know I wanted to ask about because it obviously had a profound impact on that outcome was you know you've spoken to me a number of times about this idea of servant leader, yeah. and um, you know that's not a widely sort of used. Uh, uh, piece of vernacular. So, tell us, you know, in your mind, what what does that mean exactly? Uh, it's, I mean, there are sayings to to use a quote. You know, if you are the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there, there's a bit of professional humility. That doesn't mean you're not confident. It mm-hmm. means there is professional humility. You are consultative. You are empathetic. Uh, but you are the decision maker at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, so I always tell people, this is a business, it's not a club. Yes, I'll listen to you, but it's yeah. my call at the end of the day. But you have to give people the courtesy of having been heard. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there's good and bad in that, but right. you've got to take that. And at the end of the day, the buck stops with you as a CEO. Yeah. So you have to make the call. Right. And you have to make the call promptly, so don't dilly-dally make it. But the servant leader, coming back to that, I think there's a professional humility that you do, do see that uh, there are people in the business that bring certain attributes, you have to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've got to empower them and make them run the business, whereas mm-hmm. you're, you're the leader, but the, mm-hmm. you, know, you see them running the business and that... And how do you empower them? Or how do you make them succeed? Mm. So, I mean, servant is such a... Uh, it's a word that has a lot of connotation. Yeah. You know, um, a servant is the person who, you know, has the white gloves and cleans the car and cooks the food. And, and so I suppose as a leader and a CEO, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, you know, in some respect, these people are in the business not necessarily to serve you, but to serve the interests of the business. Yeah. So how, how do you... In uh, how do you live out this value of being a servant to your team? Um, I think that you live out that value by by first of all working with them to make the business successful, mm-hmm. uh, and with that success comes their success, mm-hmm. and making sure that they grow personally within that business mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it is that empathy that that is quite critical in in being that leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are many examples. Uh, there's a brilliant podcast by Bob Iger, 
mm-hmm. who's just retired as the CEO of Walt Disney. So he's probably the epitome of a servant leader. Okay. Uh, I'd say it's, it's just a fabulous uh, uh, podcast. I had Oprah Winfrey interviews him. Right. Uh, Her audience is a little bit bigger than mine, but uh, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> oh, that sounds like that. So Bob Iger. Yeah. Right, okay. And so... Would that be the term he would use, servant leader? Or? He doesn't use it, but he embodies, embodies right. it right sure. through his leadership. Uh-huh. Where, you know, he, when he joined Walt Disney, he didn't know it all. Mm. Uh, and um, he came in from ABC, he was one of the uh, acquisitions, and mm-hmm. how he, he molded himself and eventually became the CEO and mm-hmm. succeeded a very successful Michael mm-hmm. Eisner, mm-hmm. Uh, a legendary Michael Eisner, I'd say, and, and then built his own own legacy on the back of that mm-hmm. and so at what point in your career did you adopt this philosophy was it something you learned in your MBA or was it something you learned through a mentor or how did, how did it become part of your leadership DNA um, I looked at someone who had failed when was a very very dominant leader and had what didn't succeed in a particular business this was somebody that you worked with? Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, and I said, I never want to be with someone like that. And how right. can I be different? It's only in the recent past that I did uh, did I come across this whole servant leader terminology. Okay. And there's some uh, interesting books that have been written on right. it. Okay. Uh, uh, but it is, you know, I said, okay, this is what it is. And then I could actually relate to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the key themes there is do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a business, uh, treat the business money as your own money. Mm-hmm. And these are little, uh, little uh, rules that you pick up as you go along, mm-hmm. and as long as you adopt it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it has served me well. And, mm. uh, and you think a lot of that is just good practical common sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, treat the money as if it's your own. Do the right thing. Be of service to your your staff, but. Uh, it's interesting how many people have this perception that to be a CEO, I need to be ruthless and I need to be Machiavellian and I need to, you know, rule with authority. And when you, I talk to CEOs, which I do all the time, um, it's actually, that's a very rare traits. Um, and yet there is a perception there that that's what you need to do to be a CEO. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. And all the success, almost every successful person I've met, mm. they have that humility mm. that they go with, and mm. uh, and the ability to um, to relate to people. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, an excellent example of that is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being uh, could be uh, the antithesis uh, of that. I'd say, right. but, but you know, he's successful. He's the president of the USA. That's so right. It's, <laughs> And uh, okay, so um, uh, so you're quite the business. Um, when the business was sold in 2016, what was it, what did the business look like then, as compared to what it looks like now in 2020? Um, so then, I mean, we were always audited by by Deloitte's, and so we ran a fairly stringent. You know, we had governance and all those other factors so it was more than just a mom and pop shop sure. uh, but now with now that we are owned by a US listed company that, that has gone on to a wholly different level mm-hmm. we are a lot more sophisticated in the way we budget the way we forecast the way the systems that we have uh, the technology that we have we always had great technology but we've, we've 
uh, dialed it up a notch again. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of systems that we have in place that we didn't have then. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have the scale today and the ability to afford it. Mm-hmm. But then bringing in three disparate organizations and merging three disparate organizations into one <coughs> had its challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, and it has gone remarkably smoothly, mm. uh, but uh, but uh, you know there was a lot of investment in systems, mm-hmm. and now we have the scale to be able to afford a number of things that we wouldn't have been able to um, able to afford as a as a as a single business. Then mm-hmm. um, a lot of mergers and acquisitions fail because of cultural misalignment or because of poor consideration about the. The harsh reality of how challenging it is to do that. What do you think it is about what you did um, as an organisation that enabled it to be, you know, very successful? Uh, first of all, the mergers, um, the the synergies were with growth, so mm-hmm. there weren't any cost-driven synergies. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to retrench people mm-hmm. purely to to make the PNL. Mm-hmm. In fact, we were hiring people. And the people we retrenched were because of cultural misfits mm-hmm. or, or they didn't align with where we wanted to go. Mm-hmm. So we did make hard calls that's mm-hmm. a, and had to let certain people go. Uh, but uh, we didn't have to do that because we were trying to generate a synergy dollar in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very useful because it was all about growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least the junior level staff and the middle management didn't feel that their jobs were being threatened because mm-hmm. we were consolidating operations or mm-hmm. things like that. But uh, we did lose a few people because mm-hmm. of uh, because they were culturally misaligned, mm-hmm. and that was one of the issues with change management. If somebody is not there for the ride, I mm-hmm. think it's better you get rid of them mm-hmm. than try and force them, or or they are either disconnected. Or 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 their snakes in the business, mm. right? So we had to go through those changes. Mm-hmm. And other than uh, that, were there other sort of things where you clearly planned certain event horizons of how this would need to be rolled out to ensure the high level of success? Was it as as formulated and planned as that, or more ad hoc? No, it was formulated and right. planned. So we had um, we had uh, very strict uh, milestones and guidelines and and a timetable for mm-hmm. the merger. So the systems merger, the back office merger, was driven to a very strict timeline. Mm-hmm. Whereas the front office merger for the for the front of the business was a little bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the back office functions, the technology platforms, the HR platforms, the finance platform was very regimented. Mm-hmm. We, we drove that to, to, to a, through a strict timetable mm-hmm. and, and we had a plan from word go. Uh, we had a lot of offsites getting it's this great, great um, benefit in getting people together. Uh, you know, you could have all the video conference calls in the world, but actually having people together mm. in an informal setting mm. and them talking to each other and getting to know each other, it's worth worth that little expense. Mm-hmm. Right. And did you use any third-party consulting firm to help you with that or were you largely sort of self-driven? We were largely self-driven. Mm-hmm. We were largely self-driven. We were minor consultants, but no, uh, I did 
read a lot up on change management. Right. Uh, uh, so that was sort of taught, taught in terms of reading up the right books on just change management mm-hmm. and uh, and and just thinking it through and planning it through, okay. uh, talking it through with the senior people. Mm-hmm. Uh, being very very communicative. Uh, one of the things they say about change management in these mergers is communication. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and you know, I, I probably didn't do as much as they wanted me to do, but 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 you do it. Sure. And uh, yeah. but but in in those instances, they always keep saying communicate, communicate, mm-hmm. communicate. Mm-hmm. And that that was great. Mm, great. So let's look to the future now. It's two thousand and twenty. Yeah. When you look out to let's say two thousand and twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you excited about for the business and what sort of aspirations do you have? Uh, the business itself is on a steep growth trajectory of 20% a year mm-hmm. uh, and um, and that growth should continue. Um, so it is about, um, we've got North America and Australia covered, or Australasia covered, uh, but, but, but you know, Europe is an area that we haven't done much with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been somewhat intentional because the European economies have not been as robust as some of the others. Uh, so we've, you know, we've kind of focused on our strengths. Uh, mm-hmm. Europe is, a, is an opportunity. Uh, there is some opportunities in North America in the industrial sector. Most of our industrial business, mining business, is Australia-focused. Mm-hmm. So we, we could do a lot more industrial work in the U.S., and that's something that we're looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, India, we're moving into a new office um, in the next month, uh, and that's another growth. So we'll hopefully fill that up and, uh, and have another office in India. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think you know, both business is set up for growth. There are some adjacent areas that the business can get into, mm-hmm. which we are getting into right now, uh, and hopefully that will grow as well. And hopefully the adjacent areas will be more than thirty percent of our revenue mm-hmm. in in two to three years. Mm-hmm. So, two thousand twenty-five, there's a strong likelihood you'll have offices in other countries around the world. I'd say Western Europe. Yeah. Uh, if those economies come good again, right. Western Europe is. We do have an office in Oxford, but it's largely a production office. It's mm-hmm. not that we don't sell into the UK market mm-hmm. uh, as much as uh, we should. Okay. So it's a very bright future indeed. Yes, it is. Oh, yes. That's excellent. And what about for yourself? I mean, you've had a really interesting career uh, engineering, venture capital, being an entrepreneur. Uh, CEO of a very high growth business. What are, what are you excited about for yourself for the future? Uh, I think uh, I'd, I'd like to, you know, I've run a PNL for 13 years, so it's a, it's a long grind. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I'd like to take some time off to decompress and then come back for a second innings uh, um, and look at, at, at the options that are available mm-hmm. uh, and really engage those skills to to turn around a business mm-hmm. or, or, or get there or grow a business or particularly help a, co- a company grow into say say India mm-hmm. which which a country that I know quite well sure. uh, uh, and I have operated in that country so okay well that's excellent okay. so uh, we've spoken a lot about business we've spoken about your career and so on but uh, tell us a little bit about what's Vinod all about Vinod all about when he's not at work what are, what are the things you like to do Okay, I've, 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 I've been married to Vidya, my wife, for uh, 30 odd years. Right. And, uh, so we have, uh, and we have two beautiful children who are, uh, one, one is uh, a management consultant, the other is studying law. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, so it, it is a close knit family. Right. Uh, and, uh, 
Are they I'm, still in Brisbane? Uh, they are in Brisbane. They yeah. live in Brisbane. Okay. Yeah, they live in Brisbane, and uh, I play golf badly. But uh-huh. uh, I, I should improve. But I don't get out often enough. Right. I'd like to play golf. Um, the the one passion I have is investing in the public markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do a lot of that. Um, I like investing in equities, equity mm-hmm. investment. Uh, so that's that's my immediate passion at the moment. Right. I actually absolutely enjoy investing in the in the equity markets. Um, with a particular focus in the US markets actually. And what about holidays? Where's, where's your next holiday planned? I'd love three months in Europe. Right. Just, just do nothing and just, just yeah. float around Europe. That, that would be ideal. Right. I haven't seen enough of Europe. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of the US, but mm-hmm. <laughs> not enough of, of Europe. And that would be ideal if I could just spend three months um, just floating around Europe. Yeah, I've just had a... Uh, a month in Ireland uh, wow. over Christmas. I uh, have family there, and it was nice and cold. And you get to rug up, and then come back here, and with this onslaught of heat, it, uh, it uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, hanging out in the northern hemisphere for a while. But uh, I've never been to Europe, so uh, okay, uh, I, I think that would be fantastic. Okay, so before we wrap it up, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask, or anything you'd like to add or share with the audience? No, nothing. I think uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's an honor and uh, speaking to you and thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a great pleasure and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like to accelerate your executive career journey, Richard invites you to join his CEO Incubator community on LinkedIn. Just search for CEO Incubator in LinkedIn groups and click on the Ask to Join button to apply. We'll see you in the community. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.